All right, so turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 13. And we are going to take a look at the story of the birth of Samson this morning. Would you pray with me as we turn to God's word? Lord, we thank you for for the Bible and for the stories that it tells us about who you are and about your work in our lives. Lord, I thank you that it reveals to us who we are and in the stories of certain characters exposes who we are and the ways that we are made in your image and loved by you and called to good and noble purposes and how we sometimes are really faithful to that and how other times we we fail and we we fall away and we don't participate with you in the calling that you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look to your word today, that you would show us more, reveal more of yourself to each one of us. And God, that we would better understand ourselves, who you've made us to be, and how we resist that and and go our own way. Lord, do your work in us today as we hear from your word. Amen. So again, today we're looking at Judges 13. It's the story of the birth of Samson and the events around that. When I first began reading through Judges last fall in preparation for preaching through that this year, uh, preaching through this book this year, this was a story that surprised me because it's a really interesting story with a lot of really fascinating details, but I didn't remember any of it. I have read through the Bible quite a few times, but when I came to reading this book and thinking about preaching, I just didn't remember this story at all. It it seemed like a new story to me. Uh, The other stories of Samson's life and the the stories of the judges I remembered, I had some recollection of, but this one seemed very new to me. If you know about Samson, he's this superhero sort of character. He kills a lion with his bare hands. He single-handedly wins a battle with a a jawbone of a donkey in his hand. Um, He's popular with the ladies. And when we read his story in Scripture, and especially when those stories get interpreted for kids, Samson becomes this superhero in our mind, kind of like Superman or, or Captain America. And Judges 13 is, is his origin story. It's the background story of where this man named Samson came from. And in this story, we read that from the very beginning, Samson was destined for greatness, that God had a great plan for him, that God had designs for Samson's life from the very beginning. But there was another thing in this story about Samson that I didn't remember until really began looking at it this week is how little a part that Samson played in his own greatness. God had great plans for him, but he accomplishes those plans very much in spite of Samson. Samson very rarely participates in the plans that God has for him. The story of Samson over and over again tells us that the spirit came upon Samson and then Samson does this or that great thing. But Samson never has a plan or strategy himself until the very end of his life. We don't have any record of Samson praying or any record of Samson worshiping. It seems that Samson doesn't have much of a relationship with God at all. 
Samson sort of stumbles his way through life. He's controlled by his passions. He's really unconcerned about the way of life that God had for him, this Nazarite vow that was supposed to be his rule for life. In his story, he's very unconcerned and casual about keeping those vows. And he spends more time with the Philistines than with his own people, Israel. But in all of that, God is at work. And God uses Samson for his purposes, even if Samson rarely actively participates in what God is doing in his life. So I want to read this origin story for you. Judges chapter 13, about the birth of Samson. Judges chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will because you will conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to God, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he asked, Are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Another translation can be, It is wonderful. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. 
When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manah Dan between Zorah and Eshtalal. In the last two stories that we've looked at, the story of Abimelech and the story of Jephthah, God has been fairly quiet. Not entirely absent for sure, but he's pretty quiet in those two stories. Abimelech and Jephthah are front and center, they're taking action, and God is quietly in the background. In those stories, it seems that God is allowing the people of Israel to live out and experience the consequences of their sin. Abimelech and Jephthah are ambitious men. They were ready and willing to take charge whenever the opportunity came up. And in those two stories, God seems to be in the background. We're told very clearly that God has his ways, and he he uses both Abimelech Abimelech and Jephthah for his purposes. But in those stories, God is quiet. But from the very beginning of this story, the story of Samson, God is acting. He is moving. At the beginning of the story, we're told that God delivers the people into the hands of the Philistines. We don't know the details of that. We don't have any reports of any battles that happened. Uh, We don't have any reports in particular about how Israel had done evil in the eyes of the Lord, as we did in the previous story. We just know that Israel's idolatry has come to a point where God acts. He hands them, God hands them, into the hands of the Philistines. And then God sends an angel. He sends a messenger to the woman, and the messenger tells us that God is at work, that God is going to make the impossible possible. She is going to have a child. And God sets the agenda for this child's life. He makes it clear to her how she is to act while she is pregnant, and then also how this boy is going to act as well, that this boy that she is going to have is to be a Nazarite, a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite in the scriptures is not a, a group of people. It's not a sect of people in Israel. Rather, a Nazarite was a vow that any person from any tribe, man or woman, could take. And the Nazarite vow had three requirements. First, a person who was taking a Nazarite vow was to abstain from alcohol or any other fruit from the grapevine. Secondly, a Nazarite during their vow was not to cut their hair. And third, a Nazarite was not to touch a dead corpse. And this Nazarite vow was, was made willingly by someone for a certain period of time in order to set themselves apart in devotion to God. We see in other parts of the scriptures that uh, there are others who take these Nazarite vows. Paul, in the book of Acts, probably took something like a Nazarite vow. It was a time to be set apart, a time of particular devotion and care. And Samson was called by God at the very beginning of his life to be a Nazarite, 
to have these three requirements as the rule of his life. And we're going to see in the next couple of weeks that Samson is very casual about those vows. And he likely broke all three of them pretty regularly. But this was God's purpose for him. The angel of God comes to the wife of Manoah and he tells her that she's going to have a son, that the Nazarite vows are going to be his way of life, and that he has a purpose for their son. And his purpose is this, that he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. God is the main actor in this story. God is going to be the one who delivers the people from the Philistines, not a Jephthah, not an Abimelech, but God is going to be the deliverer. He's going to raise up Samson in order to deliver his people. And when Samson grows up, as we read his story, it's always God that is empowering Samson to act. It isn't Samson's own strength through which he does these amazing things. It is the strength that God gives to him. I was talking about this story with a few people on Tuesday, and somebody asked the question, what if Samson wasn't this big buff dude that we have in our minds? What if he just looked like a regular guy? There's nothing in the Bible that says that he looked that way. It was always the spirit of the Lord that came on Samson that allowed him to do the things that he did. Maybe he was just a regular looking guy. And that's why people wondered, where in the world, Samson, do you get your strength? In Samson's story, God comes front and center. He is the one moving now to bring about his purposes in Israel. In C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, towards the beginning of that story, the Pevensey children are beginning to learn about all that's happening in Narnia. And they learn about the White Witch and why it's always winter in Narnia. And they're having a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And at one point, Mr. Beaver brings up the name Aslan. And this is what Mr. Beaver says. They say Aslan is on the move, and perhaps he has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment that the beaver had spoken his name, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sense of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Aslan is on the move. In the story of Samson, God is on the move. And for the rest of our time today, I want to look, about, look at how God moves into the lives of two people, Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson, and consider how they respond to God's work in their lives. God is on the move. What do we learn in this story about God's action in our lives as we look at the way that he acts in the life of Israel and in the life of Manoah and his wife? First is this, that God doesn't show up because someone good or ambitious has come along. 
God is not waiting to show up for someone good to come along and finally do the work. And this is the case over and over in the Bible. God chooses a a man named Abraham, a wandering shepherd. God chooses David, the most unimpressive of all his brothers, to be the king. God chooses Mary and Joseph, simple, normal, everyday people just minding their business. In the previous stories, Abimelech and Jephthah, the people around them, they were very impressed with Abimelech and Jephthah. People recognized their skill, and they recognized their ability, and they recognized their ambition, and they were looking for strong leadership. And we saw that the people of Israel grabbed these two men and said, please lead us. We are desperate for anyone to lead us. But Abimelech and Jephthah were not the men that God had chosen to deliver Israel. They were the people's choice. They weren't God's choice. God is not waiting. When God moves in our world, when he moves in our lives, he's not waiting for the good or the strong or the ambitious and capable people to come along. God makes people good. He prepares them for the work. He makes them strong and capable for the work that he wants to do through them. Second, we see in this story of Manoah and his wife, that God moves in unexpected places. God comes to a couple in the town of Zorah. It's only mentioned a couple times in the Bible. I had a difficult time even finding any information about it at all. It's not a place of any real significance. But yet this is where God chooses to come and to begin delivering his people from the Philistines. I think there's a good, simple lesson for us in this. Our attention is often focused on Washington, D.C., or New York, or Hollywood, or certainly right now, Moscow. But God is often doing his most significant work in places where you and I don't see, where we're not paying any attention. Those other places, of course, are important, too, and God is at work there, and he's concerned about those places. But he's also at work in your neighborhood. He's at work in your home. He's at work in your workplace. He wants to move there too. We also learn in this story, very closely related to point two, is that God brings his deliverance through very common people, the very common folks. The book of Judges portrays Manoah and his wife as very simple people. They aren't ambitious for power like Abimelech and Jephthah. They're not great leaders like Deborah. They're not noble like Othniel. They aren't savvy like Ehud. They're just folks. They're just plain people going about their life. Manoah and his wife were common people minding their own business, and God showed up and he said, I'm going to bring about the deliverance of Israel through your marriage, through your union together. In this story, we're not even told the woman's name. She's referred to dozens of times as either Manoah's wife or as the woman. And I think the absence of her name is is a part of the point of this whole story. That she could have been anyone. She could have been anyone in Israel at that day. It could have been any woman who just happened to be living in Zorah or in Dan or down in Judah. She could have been anyone. In the birth story of Samson, we learn that God is in control that he works in unexpected places, and that he does his work through very common, everyday people, people like you and me.
I read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 for the kids before they left. Here it is, a word for you today. For we are God's workmanship. He made you, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This verse could be read, uh, could have been said by the angel to Manoah's wife. Your son is God's workmanship, created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for him to do. This could have been said by the angel to Manoah's wife. And these are words that are words for us too, not just the Samsons of the world. We're told throughout the story of Samson that from time to time that God's spirit comes on Samson. And in that moment, he is able to overcome the enemy. But I want to remind you today that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given the spirit of God that dwells in you all the time. The spirit does not come on you from time to time. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God. And God wants to use you in your simple everyday life in our simple Midwest city. He wants to use us to deliver, deliver others from the hands of the enemy. He wants to use through the Holy Spirit, wants to use you for his purposes in the world. And so I want to ask you, how are you responding to this reality in your life? Are you participating in this work that God has for you? God will surely use you in whatever way he wants, but there's an invitation for each one of us because of the spirit of God available to each one of us who are in Christ to participate in the work that God's given to us, to use our gifts and our resources to participate in this good work. So let's look at the story of Manoah and his wife And consider how they responded to God moving into their life and ask what we can learn about how we're responding to God in our life as well. Let's begin with Manoah. In Manoah, I see a man who really wants to be in control. When God moves into his life, he does everything that he can to take charge to make sure that he knows the whole story and to get all of the right information in line before he agrees to this whole deal. Manoah's wife comes and tells him, an angel of God came to me. He was very awesome. And he told me that we're going to have a baby. And as I read between the lines of this story, it seems to me that Manoah seems a bit irritated that the angel came to his wife rather than coming to him. And so he prays, verse 8. Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us. (laughs) Let the man of God you sent to us. That didn't happen. (laughs) He sent it to your wife. Uh, Come to us again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. He asks God to come back and to teach us what we need to do. In other words, God, I'd like to hear this with my own ears. Let's talk man to man with this. Not sure if my wife can be trusted. Verse 9, God is gracious and he returns. God heard Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman (laughs) while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. 
The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, and the man who appeared to me the other day. Kind of imagine again, Manoah getting a bit irritated by this. And so he runs out, and in verse 11, Manoah got up and he followed his wife, and he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? This is interesting. His wife told him that the angel of God was very awesome. And here he comes and says, are you the man who talked to my wife? He doesn't seem to recognize God when God's right in front of him. Are you the fella that talked to my wife? The angel responds, I am. And so Manoah gets down to business. Let's talk man to man here. Why, did, why don't you tell me what needs to happen? And the angel pays him no mind. Verse 13, the angel of the Lord answered, your wife needs to do everything that I told her to do. Manoah isn't getting anywhere with this angel. And so he tries to make the angel obliged to him by offering him some hospitality. Let me make you a meal. Let me make you some food. You can come into my home and I will make you obliged to me in some way. And the angel says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat your food. But if you want to make an offering, you can. And finally, Manoah makes one last effort to take control of this situation. What is your name? What is your name? This reminds me of the night when Jacob wrestled with God all night long and asked God to reveal him his, na- his name to him. In, in ancient Israel, the name was not just a label that we give to someone. The label reflected the character of the person. Manoah here is in an, an emotional wrestling match with God. Trying over and over again to gain control over the situation. And all the while, he doesn't even recognize who he's talking to. God is right in front of him, but in his own desire and effort for control, he misses God's presence. Manoah wants control. Control over his wife, control over her situation, control over God. And the truth is, is that when we try to control and manage God, like Manoah, we stop seeing him. We stop exercising faith in God. And when we stop exercising faith in God, when we have confidence in our own ability to manage and control, we stop seeing him sometimes when he's right in front of us. Let's take a look at Manoah's wife, Samson's mama. When God moves into her life, she believes. She doesn't ask for proof or for a sign like Zechariah will do later in the Bible when the angel came to him and said that he's going to have that his wife is going to have a son named John the Baptist. But she also doesn't quite respond in worship like Mary did when the angel came to her to tell her about Jesus. But she does believe it. She does believe that God is going to do what God says he's going to do. And she goes and she tells her husband, she believes, she has faith that God can do what the angel says. But if we look closely at this story, we see some problems with her belief in the way that she retells the story to her husband. In response to her husband, she makes a really big change in the story. She doesn't give her husband the whole story. Let's listen closely. Here's what the angel says to her. Verse 5, because you will conceive and give birth to a son, no razor may be used on his head 
because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart from God to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 7, she recounts the story to her husband. The angel said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then drink no wine or any other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. What part did she take away? She takes away the most important part. (laughs) What God's going to do in delivering Israel from the Philistines. She removes God's reason. She removes God's purpose for this whole miracle that's going to happen with her and her husband. Why? Why would she leave out the most important part? Why does she leave out God's purpose that her son is going to deliver Israel from the Philistines? Maybe she didn't believe it. Maybe that part of the story just seemed too big. We've been under the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. I believe that God can do this miracle of giving me a child, but I'm not quite sure about all of that. Or maybe she didn't want to believe it. My son is going to deliver the Israel from the Philistines. That sounds dangerous. And this is my baby. It's going to be my only son. Maybe she forgot to tell that part because she didn't want to believe it. Or maybe, maybe she was only focused on the good news that was for her and not the good news that God had for the people of Israel. Maybe, like we talked about a bit last week, that God had now become useful to her, but that God didn't have bigger purposes beyond her. This woman believes. She believes that God is going to do a miracle in her life. She believes that God is real, that he is active, that he is able to do amazing things. But for whatever reason that we can only guess, it seems that she loves her vision of the future better than God's vision of the future. She loves her vision of the future more than God's vision of the future. So I'd like for us to do is to take a couple of minutes in silence to think about the ways that Manoah and his wife respond to God when he acts in their life. And I'd like for you to simply ask the Lord, in what ways am I acting like Manoah? Or in what ways may I be acting like Manoah's wife in the ways that God may be speaking to me or calling me in my life right now? But I'm responding in some way that either is unbelieving or is trying to control or in some way is hesitating to receive and to act on God's action. So just take a few minutes to be to be quiet about that now. In my reflection on this story and these questions in my own life this week, I see myself in Manoah and his wife. I really like to make plans. It's like one of my favorite things to do. I, for me, when 
Katie and I plan a vacation or decide we're going to take a vacation, the planning of it is just as fun as the actual doing of it. It's kind of weird in that way. And when it comes to ministry life, I, I like to plan and know what's coming, and I like to be in control of all of that. It can be very much like Manoah in that way. And yes, there's gifts in that and all that kind of thing, but I know that in my heart I often like to just be in control. I also know that I can be very much like Manoah's wife, that my hopes and expectations for God's work in my life and in our church and in our city is often muted and understated. I often don't believe that God is as big and as good as he says that he is, and so I lower my expectations. I have shared with you that in this new year, as I see the way that, that God is at work in our church, that I have, have never been more excited to see what God's doing. And it's, it's quiet in subtle ways, but it's wonderful and it's good and it's beautiful as we see God's people come alive. And so one of the words that I have been learning in this year is surrender. Surrender. I'd like for you to all to stand up. This is going to be a little uncomfortable for some of you, but I would like for you to all raise your hands in surrender. Usually when we raise our hands in church, we do that to praise God, but I want you to think about this as surrender. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God wants to accomplish in us, Broadway, immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Friends, I'm not talking about wealth or power or influence or being an impressive church. I'm talking about deliverance from our enemy. The promise that God gave to Manoah and his wife is that their son would be the beginning of the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. And I believe that the word that God wants to give to us today, to you and to me, is that he wants to accomplish deliverance from the work of his enemy among us. God wants us to be a healing community, a place where people find connections to one another, to friendships, and to God. God wants Broadway to be a place where we experience freedom from sin and addiction. God wants us to help set people free from poverty and sickness and depression. God wants to use us to overcome the work of the enemy who wants to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he wants to do good work immeasurably more, immeasurably more, immeasurably more than we ever ask or imagine. According to the work of his spirit, which is in each one of us. And in order to do that, we have to surrender our control, 
surrender our doubts, surrender our visions for the future, and submit to him. So God, with our raised hands today, we say we surrender. We surrender our control over things. We surrender our plans and our purposes. We submit them to your plans and purposes. Lord, we surrender our doubts. We surrender our fears. Lord, we surrender. We raise our hands, our open hands. No closed fist, open hands. We surrender to you. Lord, may you do your work here. May you do immeasurably more, immeasurably more, immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen.